Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everyone. That Williams guy here for another episode. Back today, this will be part three of our Significant Incidents uh, series. Uh, with us today from somewhere out west, Eric Delhouse. Hello, Eric. Hello, Lee. John, how the heck are you? I'm doing well. Blended. And also joining us is a guy who has not yet lost to Brian Eastridge, John Hearn. Ow. <laughs> A rough early, huh? Well, yeah. If if we're gonna sling arrows, we're gonna sling arrows. There are no rules in, in that. So, uh, both gentlemen have been on the show numerous times. Uh, Brian was asking me when I when John was gonna allow me to be on my own show again, and I said, "Well, Brian, you can't have John on yours until like you beat him at something." So, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, we are going to talk about three incidents tonight, like I say, continuing our theme of uh, significant incidents. And I'll say it now before I forget it. Uh, we have the That Wings Guy Facebook group now. If you would like to join that group so we can discuss episodes, just search for That Wings Guy on Facebook and join the group. Uh, the first incident we're going to talk about is the Norco bank robbery, which took place on May 9th, 1980. Uh, we're actually discussing this. We had it planned. And then Eric and I received a special request to discuss it by Matt Lanfair of Primary and Secondary. So we're going to make numerous audiences happy. Uh, Eric, if you would start off by giving them major details of Norco. Eric, you're muted. You're muted. Great. And there went my entire intro. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> at Norco's uh, city down in Rivers. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Take three. Norco is a city down in Riverside County. Uh, for those not familiar with the Southern California megaplex, that's east of L.A. heading out towards towards the desert. Um, five folks decide to do a series of things. Basically, this is at the start of the survivalist movement that was going on in the 80s. Um, the two folks that were leading this decided that the world was coming to an end and they wanted to be physically and financially prepared for whatever was going to come next. They had tried various schemes to fund this and it hadn't worked out. So they made the decision. They were going to go ahead and do a robbery. I think it was a Friday. I, I could be wrong, but it was supposed to be when there was going to be a sizable amount of money there. Um, there was a explosive device deployed, which didn't work um, early on. They were going to try to use that to draw officers away and then go hit the bank. In the prelude to this, they found, I can't remember what the guy did for a living. Uh, they found a gentleman with a working van that he used for his business. They carjacked slash kidnapped him, duct taped him up, shoved him in a cabinet in the back of the van and drove around with him there on the way to the bank. That way they wouldn't have anybody loose to report that it's stolen. Um, when they arrived at the bank and the robbery started and everybody on the bad guy side was fairly well armed, as the 911 calls came out, came in, there were two issues. One issue was that one of the early 911 calls 
was misrouted to a, another city nearby with a branch of that same bank, which was Security Pacific Bank. Um, so the first call went to the wrong place. So we had used responding. Once it got dispatched for the right location, about the time the dispatcher unkeyed the mic, you had a unit arriving on scene saying, I'm here without any backup. And it, go, and it goes from there. All right. Um, did we discuss the bomb? Yeah, so there was a bomb deployed early on. That was that was not the only IED involved in it, but there was a bomb that they attempted to use early on to draw everybody to draw recut responding officers away, but it didn't detonate. All right. All right. So we have ultimately in the shootout that that ensues, a deputy is killed, eight more wounded. We have over 30, 30 uh, police cars, patrol cars were damaged. A police helicopter was damaged. Um, multiple homes shot. and surrounding businesses. Uh, the helicopter was shot down. Okay. Um, so bad guys do the robbery. They come out. Uh, one of the first deputies on scene or early deputies on scenes, uh, his last name of Belaski. He deploys a shotgun loaded with number four shot. Was it John? Yeah, number four shot. With number four shot, fires a shot at the back of the van. One pallet penetrates through the van, by, uh, goes through any of the structures inside the van, and hits the driver of the getaway vehicle in the back of the head, killing him fairly early on. Uh, another deputy, last name of Delgado, ends up wounding three of the bank robbers. Um, when the pursuit finally, the vehicle part of the pursuit finally terminates, there's a shootout in, an, in forest land out east of Riverside, um, possibly pushing into San, I think it was pushing into San Bernardino County. Um, at that point, one of the deputies is, mur one of the deputies is murdered by the suspects. Um, there was only one semi-automatic rifle on the law enforcement side, and that was from a deputy who um, had been carrying it, but it had come out of evidence on that. Um, so that we could kind of get into a number of the takeaways. The interesting thing before we hit that is, kind of in a prelude to the Jacksonville, Florida UPS truck shooting and the Stockton bank robbery hostage taking, you had this hostage that none of the officers knew was inside of the van when the shots were being fired early on and how he wasn't wounded or killed um, during the exchanges of gunfire during this is nothing short of miraculous. All right. We have, after the initial shootout at the bank, we have a pursuit that leaves the bank area and as you said, crosses over into the neighboring county. Um, there are IEDs thrown by the bad guys during this pursuit. The perps set up an ambush and ambush the cops as they arrive at the scene of the second shootout. Yes. And then we end up having a two-day manhunt for the four remaining suspects. Yeah. Um, some of the takeaways on this, just as we kind of look through them, was on the officer side, being able to know what your car will and won't do in terms of whether or not it provides cover for you. Um, if you don't have that kind of expertise in your department, you need to go seek it out within the front seat. And at the time, these were big bench seats in the front of these patrol cars with the shotguns out of the way. Um, it was making sure you don't have crap or any other obstacles in the front seat of the cars. However, if you look at the patrol cars of the day, not only have they gotten smaller, but we shoved a bunch more equipment in between the seats not only the radio console shotgun in between the seats 
but also the MDC. So now it's not a question of can you slide across. It's a question of whether or not you can crawl up and over and get out the other side. Uh, patrol rifles. Uh, a lot of folks think that the North Hollywood shootout in 97 drove the patrol rifle thing. It, it seems to be going back and reading uh, the book on this event, Norco 80, and then also a podcast on it, which has a very different slant. We can talk about that in a bit. Patrol rifle movement kind of started here. And if you look at when Clint Smith and a few others started pushing the patrol rifles in the 80s, it's, it seems like there's some justification for that perspective. Uh, the IEDs thrown at officers during the pursuits, uh, the shoot down of the helicopter. On a larger perspective, communications during multi-jurisdictional events. This was flowing, you know, at a high rate of speed through various jurisdictions, eventually leaving one county going into another. How does everybody talk to each other? And if you've lost the air, lost the helicopter, who do you have that can relay information as you start moving out of um, repeater range for those that have it? Uh, ta tactical combat casualty care, TCCC stuff, which now is very common and we've done a bunch of work with it, was pretty much unheard of back then, unless you had... You know, some of the veterans from Vietnam serving that, that remembered anything or could do anything. Um, it was not common. And then in the aftermath, and, and I can't remember the office, what specific officers were discussed, but there were mental health issues that came up. And this was long before anybody was even remotely considering them in the aftermath of critical incidents. Regarding the 911 call that was misrouted, uh, Either of you know what the issue was with that? Was it just wired wrong or? It, it could have been wired wrong. It could have also been, and I'm not, I didn't work in dis. I worked in dispatch part of 1990. Um, so a good 10 years after this event and the other end of the state. Um, it could have just been whoever answered it initially was thinking of the security Pacific in that town, not the security Pacific in this town. I mean, it could have been something that simple and thinking that that was, the, the need to transfer it. And an example that in the San Francisco Bay Area, California Highway Patrol Dispatch is over in Benicia, which is in kind of the north northeast part of the Bay Area. It dispatches for all the Bay Area counties. Well, Highway 101 runs through Hillsboro or near it. And Highway 101 runs right through the middle of Healdsburg that are at opposing ends of the San Francisco Bay Area. And if you get a dispatcher who doesn't hear it right or it's pronounced wrong, you know, with folks who may not have grown up speaking, speaking English as the primary language, you can get the mispronunciations. It's interesting to hear calls get missent. So, I mean, it could have been something as simple as that. That's no one's fault. Just yeah. was what happened that day. And this would have been in the days before the modern E911 systems where stuff pops up on a dispatcher's screen. Right. And it's automatically routed to the right place. Right. Well, even in the current system, the phone company has to wire the house correctly. Right. Uh, and of course, now with the advent of so many people having cell phones, you don't have the phone lines tracing and popping up where it should be. Um, we have a city in my county that splits our county and splits the neighboring county. And, you know, the phone company has to wire the 911 calls to go to the correct dispatch center. And I know of at least one instance in where a house did not get wired to go to either dispatch center. And if they dialed 911, they just got getting a signal that the phone was ringing 
but no one ever answered. Okay. And you know, we figured that out. Ultimately, it turned out not to be a catastrophe, uh, but it was as a result of the person calling and never getting a response. Uh, so, yeah, the whole notion that 911 is going to be infallible and immediately there to save you is just false. Um, and especially, and I've already mentioned, that in the advent of cell phones, there's no way for that to work on the 911 system like a landline phone would work. Uh, I can go to more. Well, there's a. Go ahead, there's some issues with that. So, for instance, if you're in an area near a boundary of a county, the 911 call would generally get routed to the county where the cell tower is. So, you could be in the other county, but your actually nearest tower is in the other county, and it tends to get routed that way. Right. The only thing that some of the cellular does is if the 911 call center has the technology, it can actually, uh, and you haven't turned it off, you can actually pull latitude, longitude off a lot of those cell phone calls. But again, all these different boxes have to be checked for that to actually take place. And yeah. one of the one of the other issues with the cellular technology is because it's a mobile phone, it's mobile. So right now I'm in the I'm somewhere in the eastern half of Montana with a northern California area cut. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we see that as well. People move and they keep the cell phone number that they have because it's not a long distance phone call anymore like yep. it used to be. Um to, to John's point, if you stand in the Walmart parking lot in my county and make a 911 call, it's probably going to go to the neighboring county's dispatch center. And the 911, excuse me, the Walmart that is in their county is 11 miles from ours. And if you're screaming for help on your cell phone in the Walmart parking lot, they're going to send their officers to their Walmart. It's going to make sense unless you specify you're at the one in, in, in Oconee. And that's just, you know, some of the things with modern technology, things have gotten a lot better, but at the same time, there's it, as technology evolves, it complicates other systems. Uh, we created a registration system in our county where you could fill out a form and send it to our dispatch that attached your home address to your cell phone number. So that if we got a phone call from your cell phone, it would pop up on the dispatcher screen with your home address. Now, obviously, if you're not at home and making the 911 call, that's not going to help. But at least it gives us a, a fighting chance if you're screaming for help in the middle of a home invasion. You know, it does give us some sort of response there. Anything from either one of you on the on the 911 call before we move on? No. I, yeah. On the 911 call. You know, we're 40 plus years, 42 years since this. So there have been some pretty spectacular evolutions in 911 since then, but still valid point. You need, you need to be able to tell them where you're at before you yeah. start telling them anything else. Yeah. Um, I was involved in an off-duty incident, which I was a witness. I was on I-285 going around Atlanta and I saw a violent crime taking place in a car and was trying to get locals to respond to, to help me because I was playing clothes in an unmarked vehicle and doing a single solo takedown in the middle of I-285 under those circumstances was not something I was willing to do. Um, and eventually, several jurisdictions later, we finally get blue lights on the scene and get the car stopped. But that phone call went through at least four different 911 centers before we actually got the call stopped. And that's me as a deputy sheriff identifying myself and trying to get help. Oh, yeah. And uh, Eric, you already touched on a little bit on TCCC 
and stuff. That was not have been something that would have been in place then that is in place now. Correct. So, you know, because you had so many wounded officers, um, there's a pretty interesting podcast going around on the North Hollywood shootout right now. Um, and one of the things they, they touch on at length over the series is one of the officers who's wounded very early on and they're trying to maintain radio contact with him. Well, the, you know, at least in 1997, we were a little further down the food chain along the spectrum, but we still weren't doing anywhere near the casualty care that we're doing now. And in 1980, we were even farther removed from it. Unless you had, again, potentially a Vietnam veteran who was involved, who had, who retained skill, knowledge, and could improvise at that time. So that's been a big deal, not just for yourself or ourselves as officers, but for the public, right? I think it stopped the bleed month now. I keep seeing that pop up on the book of faces. Um, know how to plug a hole, know how to keep blood inside the body. John, any thoughts? John, any thoughts on emergency medical? No, I think it's, you know, one of the things that the great war on terror has really given us is a good set of tools because the deputies on scene, I think there are several people that had to, you know, treat themselves or be treated by passersby with improvised tourniquets. And we know now from all the research that the improvised tourniquets never work like a dedicated high quality tourniquet, which you do not buy from Amazon because they're almost all counterfeits. You only buy that kind of stuff from reputable manufacturers, like directly from North American Rescue, for instance. Yep. Caleb um, told me to tell me. <laughs> um, another thing on the communication issue, and this was the interoperability of the units from different agencies being able to talk to each other. It's 2022 and we still have not solved that issue. Yeah, it, it, this incident shed light on it. Certainly all the World Trade Center, excuse me, the, the you know, the 9-11 stuff shed light on that where you, you had agencies couldn't talk to each other. Um, but still now we're in 2022 and we still have issues where neighboring agencies can't talk to each other on the radio. Mm-hmm. And it's unfathomable. Now, my understanding is in, I think it's Louisiana, that when the hurricane took out all the radio networks, they just went ahead and built a single big network for everybody to use. And they, they have eliminated that issue. But I look in my area, um, when all the stuff came down from the federal government that you had to narrow band, we, we had a big plan in place where everybody was going in the same foot, same place. And then that fell apart. And like the county to the west of us, we used to could talk to directly by flipping a switch on the radio. Now we can't talk to them at all. The county to the north of us, we used to not be able to talk to them, but now we can switch to another channel and talk to them but there's no easy direct way for us all to meet at the same place unless it's a pre-planned event and i think that pre-planning is important you know uh mississippi is and i know louisiana did it i believe tennessee and alabama they all created these statewide systems uh in mississippi we have miswin right and uh, the uh, larger agencies that have a little bit of budget went over to the miswin system and can all talk to each other at least in theory the problem is you have to have access to those respective talk groups well in advance. That's not something that somebody can grant you on the fly as you're going along. These are the, you know, who, you know, when you're sitting here trying to figure out who you may talk to, you don't think about a vehicle pursuit that's gone through three counties and having to talk to somebody out that far. But again, you can't, you know, just because in theory, the system can talk to another agency. A lot of times you have these subscription plans that have to be done in advance to make those kind of connectivity possible. Um, you know, I can tell you right now, it's like, you know, our mobiles in the car only talk to us. Um, our portables can talk to other agencies. 
but when the system was created, it was designed primarily for mobile radios, not portable. So yeah, we can theoretically talk and it kind of works okay most of the time, but that pretty much describes every radio system if you think about it. Yeah. And it's not a system that works well when we have multiple agencies responding to an emerging event. Uh, I've seen it work well when we have a pre-planned thing and we all know if you switch to the C-Bank channel four, that we can all talk to each other and we meet there. But if we're in a pursuit going into the neighboring county or something, sometimes it has a route through our dispatch to their dispatch out to their officers on the scene. I can think of one instance in an ongoing kidnapping case where I sat listening to our radio in a cell phone talking to a person in the other county who had stayed on the cell phone with me listening to their radio. He'd tell me what was going on in their county. I'd broadcast it. I'd tell him what was going on with our guys, and he would broadcast it. And that was our interoperability for that incident. In California, you have, right now, we're, we're in about four situations. We've got Highway Patrol working down at a very low band frequency. And they all have the ability, everybody in CHP has the ability to talk to each other because of how their radio is set up, but nobody else is in that band. Then you have fire, EMS, and a handful of public safety agencies down in like the 150s. You have, you have a fair amount of folks in the 450s to 460s that can all talk to each other. And then now we've gotten into the 800 and the trunk systems. The thing is, there are mutual aid channels in each of those bands that cannot talk to each other unless you have somebody with a system that can patch those mutual mm -hmm. aid channels together. Now, my organization has, has a vehicle that we can take out and do that. We've got a mobile command post yeah. with an oper interoperability radio system in it that we would take to riots, various mutual aid events where we could patch everything. But there wasn't a way for dispatch to do that on the fly. Mm -hmm. So you either had to go to a mutual aid channel and hope that you know, everybody involved in the event was in that band or somebody was going to be relaying what was said in one band to folks on another like you had. So wait a minute, we can't all just punch in a few keys and see exactly where every unit from every agency and see exactly what they're doing. And you don't know why that guy two counties away has a, somebody pulled over on the side of the road. I know you're being incredibly sarcastic that the 18,000 agencies in the country aren't all on the same computer screen. No, we can't do it. <laughs> Do you guys get those phone calls? Not oh, anymore. <laughs> I occasionally get a phone call from somebody like, hey, man, I'm passing through noon and there's like three cars got, got this person stopped. What's going on? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't even know what the cars in my own county are doing. Oh, what makes you think I'm going to know what they're doing in Coweta County? All right. Yeah. What else about Norco? I'll throw in a couple of things here. I think that we we tend to plan and have our expectations built around fairly low dedication, low prepared people. You know, one of the things that amazed me about when you go back and you look at the Norco guys, they had actually, uh, you know, they had a residence, they had an outbuilding, they had actually dug a tunnel all the way through there. Their preparations, you know, had you hit them at the house, it would have been horrible no matter where you would hit these guys because they had prepared, you know, they had, you know, it, the IEDs weren't just throwable devices. They had systems rigged to launch them using 12 gauge blanks. Um, you know, one of the things that made that shootout and that pursuit so horrible was just the, the, the volume of fire that the bad guys could bring to the fight. Uh, there were a bunch of, if I remember correctly, several car 15s, basically shorty ARs. There was also a, an HK and I believe 556 and an HK and 308. 
And while that pursuit's ongoing, the, 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 the bad guys were putting effective fire on the pursuing officers from up to a half mile away. And that's not something we tend to think about as having to open up pursuit distances and stuff like that. But um, something you're going to see in a common theme, I think, about all these is that rifles in the hands of bad guys fundamentally change the dynamics of fights. And if you don't have your own rifles in the fight, it, it's always a lopsided loss for the officers or very costly loss for the officers. And uh, just, uh, you know, when they uh, I, I found an engine, you know, when they when their vehicle kind of died, they were able to find basically a heavy duty welding truck that um, had an open bed. There were large welding bottles that were effectively a, a rolling fortress. And I don't think that, you know, any, anybody prepared, you know, carrying a couple of revolvers and some shotgun with buck, you know, number four buckshot, which, you know, we know tends to underpenetrate, was remotely prepared for that. And again, you know, the, the story of Norco that, you know, the, the officers with the, the one M16, and if I'm correct, it might have been like a, a seized military gun from evidence, um, literally trying to get around the line of cars to get up to the front to get the rifle into the fight. I mean, they, they, they spent forever because they couldn't talk to each other. Hey, the guys that have the tool best able to finish this fight are literally, you know, um, you know, crawling over each other, trying to get to the front. So, um, again, um, expecting crackheads with Ravens is not a, it's not a good plan. If you if you plan for really well-armed, prepared bad guys, everything else after that is pretty much gravy. That truck that John describes, there's, um, I've seen a photo of it. And it was kind of like an American technical without a crew served in it. Now, if you guys remember the stuff from Somalia where they were putting crew served belt feds in the backs of Toyotas, um, these guys were able to engage any units coming onto the highways, you know, as they passed by an on-ramp, they were in, able to engage vehicles passing them if they inadvertently, you know, like were, were coming onto them and passing. So there were a number of situations with that second vehicle and, where the crooks with the rifles had the ability to do to do bad things to the good guys all right what if any are there lessons here for the private citizen there's a there's a host of them that that for law enforcement but what if anything that applies to the private citizens so we talked about the 911 stuff you know when you make the 911 call very quickly you need to get out where you're at or where the problem's at um the medical issues Right. It's now T I think it's now T E C C tactical emergency casualty care is what's being pushed out along with the stop the bleed. Um, being able to plug holes, keep blood inside the body of anybody around you in an event that happens like this. Um, be aware that it's not just, it's not just one dude with a note. It's, it's multiple bad guys and that maybe breaking contact and getting away and letting somebody else deal with this problem might be the best idea. Um, and then if you are stuck in, stuck at ground zero in one of these events knowing what is and isn't cover and being able to use that to give you some protection while things are going on All right, john no i was the immediate thought to mind was you know trying to figure out what is and is not bulletproof uh you know i, I only say this half jokingly you know i, I tried to talk to everybody i remind everybody that when the, the police yell get down that's not just for the bad guys that's advice for everybody that's within earshot of that command when the police are starting to yell, get down and guns are out, that's good advice for everybody. Um, the idea of standing there, I mean, you, you see it all the time on YouTube on a daily basis. There's an active gunfight going on and there's one or two geniuses out there cell phoning, cell phone videoing it. You know, um, I, I think they're in the same evolutionary branch as the guys that sit out there and insist on, you know, uh, videotaping tornadoes as they're coming in. You know, I think they're all long lost distant relatives of each other and it's not a very smart thing. Yeah. 
I think now in the in the current age, if we had this going on, you'd have people running up holding cell phones trying to capture the whole thing instead of taking cover. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, they'd be trying to outrun the patrol cars trying to get up front to get good video or it being oh, at yeah. overpasses and on ramps and doing all that. Um mm. Deputy James Evans was the deputy that was murdered. He had five years on with Riverside County Sheriff's Office at the time this happened. So we'd be remiss if we didn't mention his his passing, his loss. And I'm I'm pretty sure he put a good hit on the bad guys under remarkably difficult. You know, he he put a hit on a bad guy with a pistol under that hail of rifle fire, which uh, speaks to a certain composure on his part. Even though it didn't turn out the way he did, he he still acquitted himself quite well in incredibly difficult circumstances. Yes. Um, there's a couple media sources um, on this for folks that want to dive into it. Um, there have been articles in a number of different police periodicals, some of which are online, but there's Norco 80, the true story, the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. It's on Amazon. You can grab it. There's also a podcast called Norco 80, which does not mirror with the book. Um, it has some interesting information. It's got some interviews with folks other than the officers that were involved. I think there's one or two officers involved in it, but like the defense investigator in the case, um, they've got information from the suspects, which gives it a different perspective. Um, it's done by a uh, PBS or a public radio station out of the Los Angeles area. So it has a different slant, but it's, it's worth listening to Norco 80 podcast. If you can find it. I guess my last point on this is, you know, we don't have shared history. I point this out a lot when we talk about law enforcement. But this is one of those instances 40 years ago. Cops growing up now that are in their early 20s, they don't have any firsthand recollection of all this. No. You know, I watched the North Hollywood stuff live on TV as it was happening. And this year was the 25th anniversary of it. And I was teaching a class on the day of the of the anniversary. And I brought it up and I've got you know, early 20-something-year-old deputy sheriffs looking at me going, what are you talking about? And, you know, all these lessons, we keep having to relearn them over yes. and over and over again. When we've already paid for them in blood, yes. why are we having to keep relearning these lessons? Because apparently we're not learning them. If, if learning, if the definition, as John and I learned in a class recently, is a persisting change in a knowledge, skill, and attitude, we're not learning because there's no persisting change on an institution. I think a, Go ahead, John. I think there's a strong societal pressure to deny the potential realities that police officers face every day. Um, you know, I'm still baffled. You know, my, my first philosophy is, is if, you know, Joe Citizen can walk into Walmart, used to be able to walk into Walmart and buy it, I should be able to carry it on patrol. So the idea that every officer doesn't have access to a patrol rifle just completely baffles me. I mean, you know, Walmart sold ARs within the, what, the last three to five years. Um, and just you know, there's basic equipment, whether it's, you know, um, proper radio equipment, um, a patrol rifle. Uh, one of our takeaways from one of our officer's losses was, uh, you know, the, the availability of rifle rated plates, maybe helmets and stuff like that. Um, that's not weird militaristic, you know, Nazi-esque gear. That's personal protective equipment. No different than a hard hat on a construction site. It's just for a different job. So, I, you know, th that kind of stuff drives me crazy as far as just the frank denial about the potential danger that's out there. And I think we have, the, we have an internal denial in the profession. 
about some of those issues, right? We don't, we don't know the lessons, you know, we still, not every cop has plates, not every cop has a helmet, not every cop has, you know, both a shotgun and a rifle, or, you know, at least one of them when they go to work every day. We still have places who don't think you should be carrying backup guns. Um, we still have places that aren't issuing medical gear, even if it's just an, an individual kit on them. So it, it's just reaffirming what John's saying. Right? We, these lessons are out there. We, they shouldn't have to keep being repeated, but for some bizarre reason we do. And I don't see, I see a lack of administrators, not all of them, but enough of them that aren't going out there and hammering some of this with their peers in local government or state government to address it. Yep. And while it's not feasible for an agency to go out there and maybe completely revamp their communication system because they might not even control their communication system. They may be part of a multi-agency or a county dispatch or something along those lines. A trauma kit for every person is not that expensive. But at the same time, it's not that expensive for the individual officer to buy and if they don't care about their own life. Yeah, enough to go do that. To spend a hundred bucks on a kit that might save your life or somebody else's. Uh, all right, we'll move on. And we will go to the Gordon Call incident. And John, since you are our resident uh, Miami ex expert, I'm going to give you the most important question of the night. What links the Gordon Call incident and the Miami incident? Uh, I'm assuming you mean the presence of the Mini 14 semi-automatic rifle in the hand of the bad guys? No, there's a much stronger, much more important link. I'm, I'm, I'm failing. Michael Gross starred in both movies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was a bad guy in the Miami shootout movie, and he was an agent in the Gordon Call movie. Hey, Honey, John, John, can we fire Lee for that? <laughs> if you aren't watching the video feed and you come back and watch just the abject way that uh, poor Eric had to hang his head at, at that note right there. Yeah, I, I knew that uh, he had been uh, in the Miami video. I did not realize he had been in the uh, the Gordon Call recreation. Yeah, I, I'm very disappointed in you, John. I would have thought you would have nailed that immediately. I disappoint you every day. Well, you should be used to it by now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I still have hope. All right, we'll go on to Gordon Call. Uh, the the initial shootout that we're going to talk about was February 13th, 1983, but we need to talk about Gordon Call leading up to this incident. Um, he was an aerial gunner in World War II. I believe he was a turret gunner in the North African campaign. He has both a silver star and a bronze star, as well as other, uh, like an air medal and some other things from the war. So he is not, or was not a person who was unaccustomed to being in the middle of combat. Um, he comes home from the war and is part of the initial posse comitatus movement. And for those of you that are not familiar with that, think sovereign citizen. That's kind of what it morphed into. Uh, went from posse comitatus kind of into the militia movement into the 90s and has become the modern uh, sovereign citizen movement. At some point, he sent a letter to the federal government that he would no longer uh, pay his income taxes. And he adopted a very much an apocalyptical um, viewpoint, almost to the point of a religious viewpoint of uh, 
Texas and the government was all a communist and Jewish conspiracy, and et cetera. We don't want to get into all of that. But ultimately, he was convicted of tax evasion and served eight months in prison and then was released on, on probation. And he violated his probation. And that's where we're going to kick off uh, the discussion of the Gordon Call incident. And the initial shootout took place in Medina, North Dakota. Which one of you wants to run with the details of the shootout? John, go right uh, ahead. Right. So Eric, take North Dakota. So uh, there's some. So first off, we have to, I think, begin with that there are different accounts of what happened in this event, and all we can do is provide a reasonable account based on the information we have. Uh, basically, Gordon Call is attending a meeting in a small town. Um, the local sheriff's office contacts uh, the marshal service, makes them aware that Call is in town. Uh, the marshal service starts to rally its forces to come and try to arrest Call. Um, when, as the plan is starting to develop, because Call is apparently in town for a couple of hours, uh, they reach out to the police chief, uh, explain that they want to make a, a arrest of Call, and he's like, "They're crazy." Okay, I wouldn't arrest that man with anything less than a 30 person SWAT team. You are not going to do this in my town. And um, there's some debate about whether he tipped off call or not. Um, I can't speak to that authoritatively, uh, but the rumors persisted. But basically, um, since the town won't cooperate, uh, you know, they had something of a plan. You know, initially the contact was going to be at a railroad crossing to help channelize people in limited escape routes. Um, basically, uh, they decided to take it out of town. There's a large wetland area, I believe, to the north. So um, two cars uh, occupied by, I believe, uh, one person from the sheriff's office and two U.S. marshals uh, kind of set up a roadblock to the north. Uh, there's two vehicles behind the uh, call convoy, which is composed of two vehicles. Um, they see up ahead the roadblock, and the calls turn into the driveway of a nearby residence and are in the process of attempting to turn around and go back into town, at which point the two units at the south uh, come upon them and cut off their escape. And basically the calls deploy. Uh, there's, um, it's not just the calls, there's some other uh, followers and things such as that. So the calls, that group effectively deploys three guys with mini 14s in a circle. So there's really no good way to come up at them. Uh, the guys at the south uh, are involved in the standoff. The guys from the north kind of slowly work their way in. Um, there's some debate about this, but at one point, um, gunfire breaks out. And it's a very brief, intense fight. Um, you've got basically six guys trying to kill each other with, you know, there's three mini-14s on the bad guy side. If I recall correctly, on the, the good guy side, uh, there's two ARs, or shotguns, and the rest are armed with pistols. Um, very intense fusillade of uh, fire goes on. Um, people are wounded. One of the deputy sheriffs literally gets his trigger finger shot off, which effectively renders him combat ineffective. Uh, one of the marshals is wounded um, and is kind of uh, curled up in the car, but still alive. Uh, there's a heavy exchange of fire. Uh, Call's son, who has taken cover behind a pole, um, gets shot in that process. Um, you know, deputy, uh, deputy U.S. Marshal to the north. Uh, who's kind of out in the open, armed with just a pistol, uh, is wounded. Uh, another U.S. Marshal takes some shrapnel that um, causes extensive brain injury, doesn't kill him. Uh, interesting enough, one of the details I just picked up today is apparently the Marshal to the north that uh, was actually, uh, that died, uh, he actually put a hit on Call's son from a pretty good distance with a pistol shot. Yes. The only thing that kept that shot from hitting him was it struck a, a holstered pistol that was in a shoulder holster. 
So, but for that pistol uh, call, some would have probably been struck by a very long pistol shot, which is kind of impressive in and of itself. Um, so again, um, very extensive exchange of fire. At the end of this, the calls are largely intact. Uh, Gordon Call walks over to the U.S. Marshal who was on the south side and literally puts uh, two 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 threes into his head at point blank range. Because again, prior to that, he had been struck, but he was still alive and would probably be able to recover from those injuries. Uh, he confronts, I believe, one of the deputy sheriffs uh, who had been wounded and runs him off, uh, decides not to engage him. But after all this is done, there's you know officers laying dead on the ground. They basically take one of the patrol cars uh, and drive their wounded crew back into town, at which point Gordon Call um, becomes a fugitive and uh, you know is involved in a subsequent event in Arkansas. John, I may have missed it. Did you, just to go back, did you talk about Call closing with a wounded marshal on foot and executing him yes yes i did that was the, okay. the guy on the south side that he shot twice okay sorry i missed um, that and uh you know I, I think one of the things that was interesting was that apparently you know, there's a lot of witnesses you know in the post fight because you can always you know um tell a little bit after but you know one of the ems workers reported that you know uh somebody asked call as they're treating uh his son he goes was all this worth it over some taxes and calls like it was to me which I think is a, is a pretty telling sign about how he, where he was mentally in this whole event. You know, he had been looking for the apocalypse and he was able to trigger it and in his mind uh, effectively emerged victorious from that whole process, at least in this chapter of the offense. You know, talking about triggering the apocalypse, I saw an interview with a preacher from the area who basically, his claim is that Call thought that the confrontation would actually literally trigger the apocalypse. And that this, that the whole confrontation, the shootout was what was going to, you know, start the end of the world. And the collapse of the whole system. Uh, Eric, well, and again, it goes back to, yeah. go ahead, John. I think, no, go ahead. you know, we have to keep in the back of our mind is that, you know, we like to think that people are rational actually. We think we talk about instrumental criminals and people that just want to get paid, but there are some people out there who are detached from reality as we understand it. And that's something you'll see in a bunch of these, um, significant events you know the the guys that we just talked about in norco they thought the world was in and they were part of that survival movement so once you've got these people with this fundamentally different worldview you can't judge them based on what we think of as normal thought for lack of better words eric you're muted eric sorry i was trying to be quiet um now can you hear me can you yeah. hear me now Okay, so to go back to what John was talking about, the very dedicated crooks, the absolutely in it to win it crooks that we're not used to, as a general rule, we don't we don't deal with, right? We don't deal with multiple people that are in it to win. Um, going back to high risk tactics, this was 12, 13 years after Newhall, and yet there was no coordinated plan no standard operating procedure for doing a high-risk vehicle stop now this would be more like a convoy interdiction that you know folks in iraq and afghanistan saw over the last 20 years or other places syria africa but still no no plan no set way of trying to at least initiate a high-risk vehicle stop on people that are known to be violent and are going to resist and then the yeah. weaponry issues as well I think one parallel we can draw here for both the cop side and the private citizen side is the whole thing that goes back to who starts the contact and who starts the fight. The cops in this instance started the contact. 
the bad guys started the fight and the bad guys won. If you're the private citizen and the bad guy starts to contact with you in the parking lot or wherever, if you start the fight, the chances are that you are going to be more likely to prevail than, than not. Yeah, the, the person that initiates the violent has a huge advantage. My, my, our dear departed friend, William April, I've got the quote written down somewhere. He says, the best way to win a fight is to start it. Um, because that advantage of initiative puts you firmly in your rational mind and you're making everybody else respond to you from that point. And I think one of the things that's fairly without disagreement with is that the first shot in this exchange was fired um, by somebody from the call side. The, the shots were not initiated by the marshal service. I just got the, the, uh, the distinct impression that they had lost their advantage. They're kind of in the standoff where they don't have the resources, the, you know, um, the people to really push this matter. So they're kind of stuck until something happens. You know, the, the, the marshals were effectively in a loop until the bad guys did something that altered the whole um, series of events and kicked everything off. Yeah. As cops, we kind of get programmed into that when we turn on the blue lights, the person's either going to surrender or they're going to run away, try to run away, and we just go catch them. Mm-hmm. We're not programmed to deal with the guy that just comes out fighting the private citizen dealing with the, the, the perp, the perp program that the private citizens are just going to surrender and give up the goods. They're not programmed to deal with the private citizen automatically suddenly, you know, counter reacts with violence. Uh, I do want to point out that Dr. April also said that we win every fight that we avoid. And so if we can avoid the fight as a private citizen, that's what we should be doing. Go ahead, Eric. No, I was just going to say, and this might have been one where avoiding it or at least not initiating at that point would have, would have been a better, better opportunity. It wasn't an in-progress crime. This guy had been wanted. He'd been wanted for a while. Uh, maybe the chief was right. Yeah. Right. Maybe not in my town, not without a 30-man SWAT team. Um, my impression was not, even though there was a warrant, issue for the guy it wasn't like the marshals were out beating the bushes looking for him but they get the phone call hey this guy you've got a warrant on he's right here i can yeah. see him oh okay we'll come try to get him yeah one thing that was fascinating and i don't know what what john was watching today i oh he sent me a video link to one on youtube there was a discussion in one of the videos about when the kind of the all call was done for law enforcement response to this, at least one individual told his supervisor, I'm not going unless you directly order me to go. And the supervisor was like, well, I'm not going to order you. So that guy didn't, didn't participate in the event. One thing we should discuss here is that apparently this could not have all have happened because Hollywood has trained us that when the feds show up and they start issuing orders, that the locals must do what the feds say. So I know John has delusions of being able to show up and give us all orders, but uh, yeah, yeah. Here we have this incident, you know, instance of the marshals show up saying, "This is what we're going to do, and we're going to do it in your town." And the local cop going, "Oh no, you're not!" And the local cop won that encounter. Well, I think the you know the, the local cop has the um, advantage of knowing the person. You know, mm-hmm. Call was out there. He apparently. He practiced with the mini 14 all the time. He literally kept it by his side, you know, forget carrying a pistol all the time. He literally carried a rifle around all the time. 
And if you're on good terms with him, for lack of better words, as the chief of police, and you're aware of that, um, you know, this is a guy that was apparently was a very good shot and he's got a capable weapon system. It's like, that's not something you just want to bite off casually. And, uh, you know, we, we can, I think you can draw some parallels between this event in Miami and in much of the stand way, uh, same standpoint of, you know, be careful going out there looking for bad guys because you might actually find them. And it's going to be the, the better plan you have to deal with them, the, the better off you're going to be as far as that outcome. Yep. If you go going looking for trouble, be prepared to deal with the trouble that you find. So along those lines, um, Lee, you, you posted that we were going to be doing this podcast and mm-hmm. our, our mutual friend, Matt Landfair asked the following with so many being overly reliant on guns, gear, gadgets, and not as much with the training. Are there any specific advancement in law enforcement guns or gear that would have drastically changed the outcomes or directions of those incidents? I think gear wise, patrol rifles and armor because uh, one of the deputies that was one of the deputy marshals that was murdered uh, was first shot round penetrated through the vest and then was shot in the head. So potentially rifle rated armor would have done that patrol rifles would have extended the distance or increased the capability had all been using them. Um, It looked like time-wise and I'm not familiar with the, the timeframes in the weather, sorry, lighting in North Dakota, but in February in North Dakota, um, I'm wondering how dark it was when that thing kicked off at 5:45 in the evening. So lights, no lights. Were they using patrol car lights? Um, you know, Lee just brought up in our chat uh, being able to run the gun with support hand only for the officer that took a round of the trigger finger. Right? I think it's more though than equipment. I think this one at least was going back to life's like a box box of chocolates to quote Forrest Gump you don't know what you're going to get until you bite into it and this might not have been the one to bite into at that time no disrespect to the the dead marshals yeah well I think part of the problem with this one is that these guys uh the bad guys were prepared they had thought about this you know one of the things that made this so uh kind of horrific is that the bad guys didn't all hunker around their cars and try to hide the bad guys dispersed, you know, call, uh, call stayed at the vehicle. His son moved to a good solid cover behind the post. Uh, the third guy with the mini 14 kind of moved up and was protecting them from the guys up there. That's small. That's three man, small unit tactics. And that's not something that most officers, um, are really trained for or ready to deal with. Now, uh, is there a point where we have to think about small unit tactics? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I think to a certain degree, you know, active shooter is kind of a small unit tactic game uh, if you have enough bodies there. But um, because of the, uh, how do I say this, the political malcontents that uh, always talk about militarization, uh, militarization isn't a bad thing when you got three guys with uh, many 14s you're trying to deal with. Another thing that I think of with the Gordon Call incident is you look at when it took place and when. Uh, he started down the path that he did. Yeah, seventy-six to eighty. Well, seventy-seven to eighty-one was Carter's term, and everything that was going on in the world, all the rampant inflation, uh, all the political stuff that was going on with the farmers and everything in the Midwest, spawned a lot of these movements. Mm-hmm. And if you look at contemporary times we're kind of back 
and yeah, and John brought up the oil crisis. We're kind of back into that same thing right now. So I'm wondering what we're going to start seeing spawn. And in 2022, everyone is immediately connected with Facebook. It's not isolated in social media and cell phones. It's not isolated little groups of movements that where people have to go to a camp and have an actual in-person meeting to do their stuff. It's instant communication everywhere. And I'm just kind of concerned as to what we're going to see pop up over the next few years. I think your concern is well-founded. Um, I, it's, I don't care what side of the, the political aisle one falls on. Uh, I think your concern is very well-founded. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's all kinds of things that can be, you know, we can debate whether they're good or not, but are going to tend to be triggering to these people. So we've got the two big announcements from the ATF that came out recently, the redefinition of uh, what a receiver is, what is and is not a ghost gun, how they're going to deal with that, as well as the upcoming ruling on pistol braces. This is the kind of stuff that tends to be very triggering to these people, especially stuff like pistol braces that have been effectively okayed for a long time. And, you know, the government saying, okay, you can do this. And then, you know, 12 or 15 years down the pike, suddenly changing their mind and saying, you're, you're now all felons. That's the kind of decisions that just feed into the paranoia that these people are consumed with. Uh, John, anything further on Gordon Call before we move on? No, uh, just, you know, be careful what you go out there looking for. You just might find it. All right, Eric. Have, have standard operating procedures that work across, you know, the agencies you're likely, yours and the agencies you're likely to work with. Have a plan and realize that not everybody's going to give up. Some people are in it to win it. And there is a vast difference between someone who is trying to get away and someone who's putting up a fight. A yeah. um, couple notes, and we'll, I, we'll try to give Lee the link for the, well, he can't do it on the show notes um, for the video, but Claude Warner, the tactical professor, has a pretty good write-up on this event and includes a link to a video that breaks down kind of on the timeline who was where and doing what. So you can you, post that link in the That Weems Guy Facebook group. I will do that. And I think I, I will just chime in because I think it's a very useful way to do it. You mentioned Claude, and um, I had seen this kind of model thrown out by both Keith Jones and Claude. I don't know if they came upon it independently or they kind of one brought it from the other. But, you know, Claude makes an important distinction between an armed confrontation, a gunfight, and a gun battle, right? And we see a lot of gunfights um, they're, they're what we typically see in law enforcement. And the bad guy is trying to use violence to make an escape. A gun battle is a fundamentally different thing. Gun battles are marked by a very high level of emotional commitment by the participants. Gordon Call had a high level of emotional involvement uh, in this event, right? Uh, and as a result of that, these are typically battles to the death. And I think that Claude had a really, really good, um, you talk about recognition, prime decision-making we've touched on before is movement bad by the bad guys that is not escape. If the bad guy maneuvers on you and he's not running away, you have found yourself in a gun battle. It is a 1% kind of event, but it's a very, very high stakes kind of event. So especially for the cops out there, once the bad guys maneuver and they're not running away, you are in a life and death struggle that is going to only be ended when people are dead. And you've just got to decide who those people are going to be. 
you know, that coupled with what you said earlier when call was asked was it worth it and he said it was worth it to me you know yeah. that's a guy who's who was willing to commit murder over his beliefs and he was also willing to fight to the death which he actually did uh almost four months later uh june the third of 83 uh in uh arkansas near mountain home arkansas he was eventually uh involved in another gun battle but uh Several of the other people who were present in Medina are still in prison over this. They're due to be released next year. Yeah, Eric, did you just, have something? No, I was just going to say on those, the son and uh, driver of one of the other vehicles are ghost, both going to be in custody until February next year. Uh, the driver of the car that Gordon Call was in got 10 years for harboring. Um, and then one of the other subjects uh, did two years in custody after turning as, turning as a witness for the feds during the oh. prosecution. And I guess just one final point is just the the still the universal disagreement over who should take the blame and everything that went down on that day. And it's we all want to tie things up in a bow. But sometimes that's just not possible. I think fundamentally just looking at it, you had a bunch of people who were trying to do what their their jobs, mm-hmm. right? but they'd all kind of been thrown together. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll move on to the Shannon Street incident, which took place January the 11th of 1983 in Memphis, Tennessee. And I turn it over to John. So uh, I'm not sure. This is interesting of the events we talked about. This seems to have been more of a regional thing. You know, if people don't know about Norco, they certainly don't know about Shannon Street. But uh, I've got a lot of connections to the Memphis area, and this is something that people, it still kind of echoes, I guess, for lack of better words. And it's, I find it a fascinating issue. It's one of the unusual events in that only one officer died in this particular event. Uh, most everything else we looked for had at least two casualties. But Shannon Street and the stuff that led up to it, um, to me, is absolutely uh, a rich vein that we can mine from. So uh, going back just a little bit further in history, Memphis PD had a tack team fairly early in the game. Um, we think of active shooters, a new thing, but Memphis got their tack team in large part because of an incident that happened in 1971 called the, uh, the Kansas street massacre. The Kansas street massacre is something that we would recognize today as an active shooter event, uh, a bad guy armed with a rifle. Okay. Again, a very common theme in this particular case, a lever action, 30, 30 killed five people. One of those was a Memphis PD officer. Uh, in a nutshell, the, the responding officers armed only with revolvers and a few shotguns were completely unable to do anything to stop the bad guy with the rifle. Um, what ended up happening the way that fight was ultimately ended, uh, and I'm not making this up because they would actually later use this thing in a Dirty Harry movie, the bad guy holds up in a house and the police start to shoot the house and they dump enough fire into the house that it structurally collapses. That actually did happen, Right. But as a result of that singular event, Memphis is like, hey, we need to have more better trained, highly capable officers out there. And I, I find it interesting because, uh, you know, th- this massacre took place right around the time of the Simonese Liberation Army, which was the first really big LAPD SWAT incident. So, you know, Memphis was um, fairly close behind them as far as getting those assets out there. Um, again, as prelude uh, before Shannon Street, uh, 
There had been a hostage taking at the uh, the large children's uh, research hospital up in Memphis. Uh, if I recall correctly, like some dude from Canada had come down, held somebody hostage for about 30 hours. Uh, they negotiated for the 30 hours. And at the end of the negotiations, the attack team decided to make a uh, hostage rescue entry and kill the bad guy. So unfortunately, it kind of set the precedent that um, uh, if we just let people talk long enough, all this stuff will work out. So those are, to my mind, kind of the key components um, that, that uh, helped set the stage for this. So on the day of the Shannon Street Massacre, uh, you have what I think could be fairly called a religious zealot, again, kind of an ap apocalyptic end of the world, probably more of a Branch Davidian, very religious-based. I am the, 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 you know, the, the knower of all things, kind of Messiah complex going on. But there had earlier been a uh, shoplifting incident at one of the local grocery stores, and somebody at the house where this takes place actually called in the police, called in and said, hey, the guy you're looking for, I think it was like a, per it might have been even a purse snatching or something very benign is here at the house. So they just, without any kind of warning just or anything, dispatched two officers to just go and follow up on this thing and try to um, figure out what's going on. Uh, the officers show up on scene. Um, they go to talk to people in the house and the officers are essentially um, overcome forcibly. Um, there's a, a nasty scuffle that ensues um, in that process of trying to take the officers into custody. Uh, one of the officers is shot uh, and escapes from the, the house. Uh, the other officer is held hostage and is held hostage again for about over 30 hours as part of this process that goes on. Uh, the officer that's wounded flees the house. Uh, there are, I believe, two separate attempts, very brave attempts by Memphis single, singular Memphis police officers to enter the house and try to um, rescue the uh, officer that's been left there. Um, they simply are unable to do that. So this uh, kind of standoff ensues. And I have it on good authority that the attack team had, you know, the listening gear and stuff like that. So they, they were aware of what was going on in the house. But uh, and just a horrible example of the, the people on the political side of this may not have your interests in mind. Because they had set the precedent at the earlier hostage taking, and I believe the guy from Canada had been white, and you've got a, uh, I believe, a black majority city council, you've got a black mayor. Uh, apparently, there was huge pressure on the police department that if we gave the white guy 30 hours to negotiate, we've got to give the black, you know, we got to give them 30 hours to negotiate on the black guys. So the general consensus is that the officer who had been taken hostage would be murdered about 12 hours into the standoff. Um, when I say murdered, he was beaten to death with a kelite. Uh, basically, they caved his head in with a kelite. Uh, the TAC team is listening to this whole thing in, in live time. Um, I've never been able to confirm it, but there was probably, uh, there had always been rumors circulated about um, some other desecration of the body along the way. So um, eventually, uh, the Memphis police officers uh, force entry into the house. Uh, a gunfight ensues, and um, everybody that's basically in the house, I believe there were a total of seven people, are uh, shot and killed in the follow-up shootout. Um, you know, so some stuff that I always take away from this is that, you know, just a reminder that your administrative side of the house is going to have a very different side than what the guys on the street are doing. The street guys are there attempting to enter the, the, the house immediately and rescue their fellow officers. The admin takes a much longer view of this stuff. Um, you know, we talk often for the armed citizen about the second crime scene, right? Don't go to the second crime scene. The initial confrontation with the officers took place outside and apparently once they were able to get them inside that's when all the really really bad things happened uh you know something else we see here um as well 
you know, it was basically a ruse call to set up the ambush of the officers. So again, um, a lot of similarities between other events we've seen, um, as well as some lessons that uh, are relevant for both law enforcement and the armed citizen. Eric? There we go. This is one that I don't have the familiarity with. Um, one of the things I was going to ask John is, it's, my understanding is that NYPD had something similar to this in the same era. Um, like it might have occurred at a mosque. Um, and I could recall Pat Rogers talking about it, but I can't recall specifics. Do you think this is something with the kidnapping, the intentional kidnap and torture of an officer on duty overtly like that was something that was specific to that era? It, what was going on, let me rephrase that, specific to what was going on in that era culturally to where we might see something like that cycle back? Um, or do you think that was just a one-off for that event, that location? I would say it was a combination of the, the racial tensions that are inherent in policing a, a very impoverished Southern city, um, just as well as that kind of messianic figure uh, collecting people around him uh, to kind of do his bidding. So, I, you know, anytime you have that, you know, kind of those ingredients mixed together, it's just a matter of time before you get the exact combination right and it cooks off again. Okay. Uh, you know, I, this is one that I was not familiar with until John mentioned it and wanted to discuss it. And I began looking into it. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be listening to one of my fellow deputies being tortured and murdered. And being told to stand down and not do it, that not go in and do something. That's just, just so so foreign to the way of thinking where I work. Mm -hmm. Um that I, I don't quite frankly, I don't believe our personnel would follow such an order. I think they would just go. Um but I, I do think that the point that John made about the second crime scene for the private citizen, if you are tempted to be moved from one location to another. That's never, ever, ever going to end well for me. You can't allow that to happen. At the same point, you know, for the cop, they're, you, they're trying to take you hostage. That is a life, you know, everything is on the line at that point. You cannot allow that to happen, and you can't allow it to happen to one of your coworkers. Huh? So, hey, uh, moving back to your earlier point, you know, we all, one of the running jokes is a, a huge oxymoron is, you know, military intelligence. I would offer that police leadership is arguably a better candidate for the, uh, the penultimate uh, oxymoron. For some of the 18,000 agencies. For, for some of the 18, well, unfortunately, for the majority of the 18,000 yeah. agencies, especially the larger cities uh, uh, in more densely urban areas, dude, it's just the way it is, um, you know. Or more woke areas. I, I think uh, I think one of the things we can take from this too is for the private citizens, that constant thing that gets put out in the training world is you're on your own. Yeah. You are your immediate first responder. If no one's coming to save the cop who's hostage, no one's coming to save you. Uh, and, and the cop who can press a button on a radio and at least talk to the same people that work with alongside them. Yeah. And it's not having to deal with cell towers and the, and the like. Now we've, we've already outlined uh, tremendously here where there are issues with the communication system but that's all interop it's not talking to your fellow co-workers other than dead spots in your radio system and the like 
All right. Uh, Eric, what final thoughts do you have to sum up these three incidents tonight? One, look at the nature of the bad guys that are involved. Everything was a group, right? It wasn't wasn't a lone bad guy with, with a raven. Um, everybody was was more dedicated. Well, everybody was in a group. Two of the groups we talked about were far more dedicated in terms of what they were willing to do to accomplish it. Um, likewise, officers need to know the limitations and capabilities of their equipment. If we can get patrol rifles in, into some of these events far earlier, we're going to be much better off. Um, don't be surprised when the bad guys go to an extreme level of violence early on explosives, um, you know, a high level of gunfire coming back your direction and, and a dedication behind it to stay in the fight. Um, and then medical skills, as well as what other skills you can bring to the event to take care of yourself. And, and that's not just a cop thing that could be at any of other, any of these other events. Yeah. Um, Skip Guggenhauer made this point a long time ago, and I thought it was a, a very solid observation based on what we've seen, is that as a general rule, the criminal populace are not necessarily gun people. They don't train that well and stuff like that. But that there is a subset of bank robber. A lot of these, you look at you know Newhall, Miami, uh, Norco. I mean, the guys that are looking to hit banks tend to be far better uh, equipped, far more gun savvy, better trained uh, when you start dealing with that. So just as kind of a watch out for the officers involved is that, you know, that alarm at the bank should kind of be a uh, spidey, you know, tingly spidey sense thing that if I do run across a bad guy here, it may not be some dude passing a note saying I have a gun or I have a bomb. It could be a crew of really, really hard people and you need to be thinking about where am I going to position myself? Where am I going to be out far enough that I can respond to, to uh, you know, actually a, a serious attempt here? Because um, again, we see it again and again and again. Um, this is a completely different subset of criminals. Uh, you know, they're not just instrumental. They seem to enjoy the gunplay and almost go looking for it. So um, again, alarms at banks are not necessarily uh, something to scoff at. You know, as I think about the part two episode where we talked about the lessons that we were learning from the early dash cam era and in in those incidents and how it is so hard for the cop who, you know, we want to show them those incidents so that they are prepared for that and can be mentally prepared to respond to it. But the downside is, is that when they run into the citizen that is not one of those guys is then being able to flip and effectively deal with those situations as well. I think we can apply that same thing kind of here is we have to be prepared anytime we initiate the action or we respond to a call coming over the radio. We have to be prepared for the fact that it might be the Norco bank robbers or it might be Gordon Call and his buddies. But it may be the private citizen as well. That's not that. And it is such a hard line uh, for the guy with the badge to watch. I mean, to walk. Um You know, people want perfection, and it's just such it's it's just such a hard line and such a hard standard to meet. Because if you're wrong, you pay with your life, or other people die. And it's not limited to one area, 
right? Or it's not limited to urban areas. Mm -hmm. So Norco's in the, in the greater LA megaplex, right? But county that I worked in, we say five years ago or so now, we had two dudes who have gone up and down the state of California doing armored car robberies. Um, they hit an armored car, an armored car guard coming out of one of our local businesses, uh, shot him several times in the legs, lower back with an AK-47 or a semi-auto variant of the AK, snatched up his bag. I think they got another bag or two out of the armored car, fled, went into an adjacent county. Um, a cop saw him come over the hill, knew what the suspect vehicle was when they came over the hill. He, they tried to engage the officer. The officer rammed their vehicle. Um, took one of them out of the fight immediately the other fled but we ended up in a situation where two county SWAT teams from two counties and FBI are working an area you know in the county adjacent to where the original robbery happened dealing with two guys who had a history of killing people with AKs and it just had to be their weapon of choice um, continuing on and that was within the last five years in what was once called a peaceful wine country suburb John any follow-up no, I think we've hit all. I've hit all the key points that are at least coming to mind right now. All righty, uh, John. What do you have coming up? Uh, let's see, I'm at uh, where am I? Uh, Nashville, uh, July. Uh, I've got uh, who wins, who loses, and why. The lecture on Saturday, and then uh, cognitive pistol with tactical anatomy on that Sunday. Uh, August lecture series in Phoenix at Cecil Birch is sponsoring me for. Uh, September is open, but I'm probably going to be in Chicago doing that same combination of lecture and cognitive pistol. Uh, October, I am teaching with Tom at his personal pistol craft instructor course, as well as the Range Master Instructor Union. And then November, I am out at uh, Meat Hall Range. Right, Eric? Let's see. I've got a, a week doing red dots at Gunsight in July, another week doing red dots at Gunsight in August. I'll be back down at Gunsight for three weeks in October. Um, and then I will be in Connecticut right now, looking like uh, November 7th through the 11th for low light instructor, low light carbine and high risk stops instructor class. Uh, I, I am more than willing to travel. All right. Uh, I have the last week, excuse me, the first weekend in June, I am in Terre Haute, Indiana. Oh. Uh, for two courses, struggle trigger management on Saturday, pistol craft on Sunday. Those classes are in desperate need of registrations. So if you're in that area and would like to attend, please get signed up now. Uh, last weekend in June, I will be in Kalamazoo, Michigan uh, for that same combination of classes. And those are almost two thirds sold out. So you better hurry on those as well if you want to get a spot. Uh, the first weekend in August, I will, that Saturday, I will be doing trigger management in San Antonio at an indoor range, so we won't have to worry about the sweltering heat, and that is just Saturday, that trigger management class, um, and then later in August, I think August the 20th, uh, that weekend, I will be also in Nashville at Royal Range, doing trigger management on Saturday, and handgun combative essential pistol on Sunday, um, John and I will both be at the Andy Stanford Speed Shooting Summit coming up in June as well. And, oh, October, first weekend in October, Miamisburg, Ohio, for the combo trigger management and pistol crafts. And I think that's everything I've got scheduled for coming up now. Uh, so for our audience, thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. Don't forget about the Facebook group. And 
as always, we thank you for your time.